Good evening. Welcome to our Good Friday service. I'm glad that you guys are here. Uh, one of the uh, uh, unfortunate uh, mistakes that contemporary Western Christianity makes is that uh, a church service should always be inspirational and peppy and should leave you excited or at least comforted. And uh, that's not true, of course. A Christianity addresses the whole human being. And so there are definitely times when we will be excited. Come back on Sunday for that. There are also times when it's totally appropriate to be completely down when you leave a church service. And that's one of those nights tonight. And so you'll notice it's a lot darker in here. And by the end of the service, it'll be a lot darker in here than normal. This is a tenebrae service, a service of darkness. If you haven't done that before, I just kind of pay attention to the bulletin. One of the things that makes this different than any other night is that we'll all leave here quickly and silently and uh, be ready to come back here uh, Sunday morning to celebrate our Lord's resurrection. But tonight's a night to think about his death and how much specifically, one of the things we focus on, if I can preach a mini-sermon here at the beginning, one of the things we like to focus on in Western Christianity is... uh, Sometimes, uh, you know, the wrath of God and our sinfulness, and I'm not saying that that's not appropriate, but honestly, one of the things we, the the first thing we should think about when we think about the cross of Jesus Christ is his love for us and how much God cares for and is passionate about rescuing us. And so tonight, let's focus on that. Let's begin by standing and singing the power of the cross.
didn't. We're going to do a responsive reading like we do every Good Friday, this reading from Isaiah 52 and 53. And just a reminder, Isaiah is written 600 years before Jesus is born. The oldest manuscript that we have of Isaiah, that I say we, human beings, is located in the Dead Sea Scroll Museum. It's from 400 years before Jesus is born. So at least 400 years before Jesus is born, God's people are already envisioning that the salvation he's going to win, the first few verses here are all about the coming kingdom and God's rule and reign, are somehow tied up with this servant who's going to come and suffer in order to bring that kingdom about. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring gospel, who proclaim peace, who bring gospel, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, uh, from Babylon. Touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, and yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord make his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. 
after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Almighty God, our maker and redeemer, we poor sinners flee for refuge to your infinite mercy, seeking and imploring your grace for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. O most merciful God, who has given your only begotten Son to die for us, have mercy upon us, and for his sake grant us remission of all our sins. And by your Holy Spirit, increase in us true knowledge of you and of your will and true obedience to your word, to the end that by your grace we may come to everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, has had mercy upon us and has given His only Son to die for us and for His sake forgives us all our sins. To those who believe on His name, He gives power to become the children of God and has promised them His Holy Spirit. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Grant this, Lord, unto us all. Amen. Stand with me now, if you would, and let's confess, if you can, let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of God, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please stay standing for the sermon hymn.
may be seated. Sermon text for tonight is from the Passion Narrative in Luke chapter 23. And I'm just going to pick out just uh, one part of it. And we're going to read at the end of the service, as you can see in the bulletin. We're going to read the entire Passion Narrative from the Gospel of John. But in Luke 23, Jesus is on trial before Herod. He's been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's on trial before Herod. And then he goes before Pilate. And Luke says that Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find, any, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who'd been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that, this, that their demand should be granted. He released them, the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So last night, if you were here last night, we talked about big picture stuff. Sometimes it's worthwhile to look at the Bible and like look at the big signpost. The Exodus, of course, is the primary redemptive event in the Old Testament. It's the thing that, it's the signpost forward to the main redemptive event of the Bible, which is Christ's death and resurrection. We looked last night at the Lord's Supper and how the writer of Hebrews ties in the theme of Exodus with the theme of Jesus' redemption. Jesus himself had a, a Red Sea experience to go through. Jesus intentionally plans his own death for the weekend of Passover in order to connect his death and resurrection to this great theme of Exodus and Passover. So sometimes it's worthwhile looking at the Bible and looking at big picture stuff. Tonight, I'm going to kind of do the opposite. I'm going to look at the, in this sermon for the next few minutes, I'd like to look at the story of Jesus' death and look at two minor characters who, who really we don't know a whole lot about and really don't perform a super important function as far as the narrative itself goes. Simon of Cyrene, who carries the cross for Jesus, and Barabbas, the insurrectionist who's released by Pilate. Well, what do we know about these guys? First of all, Cyrene, Simon of Cyrene, what do we know about him? Verse 26 of the, uh, the, the Luke 23 reading says, As they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Well, that's, all, that's the only time he shows up in the story, and that's pretty much all the information that you get from the other Gospels. He, he shows up in Matthew and Mark as well. He doesn't show up in John. John's going to say Jesus uh, carried the cross. Uh, doesn't, is, is not going to mention Simon of Cyrene. But what can we know about Simon of Cyrene? Well, first of all, he's an African. He's from the city of Cyrene, which is in present-day Libya. So uh, one question that people sometimes ask is, what ethnicity was he? Was he black? We just don't know. Uh, the, the ancient world, they didn't really identify people by their skin color too much. They did more by location. So it's possible that he was. It's possible that he wasn't in North Africa. There were a lot of Roman colonies in North Africa. 
Cyrene was a big city during Jesus's day. It was built on the growing and the selling of silphium, which is an herb that we don't know a whole lot about because it only pretty much grew around Cyrene, but was extremely expensive. It was used as uh, an aromatic. It was used as seasoning for food. It was used for medicine. It, was, it had well-renowned abilities as an aphrodisiac. Uh, it was harvested to extinction and no longer exists. And so the city of Cyrene, several hundred years after Jesus' day, uh, was abandoned. And today, it's archaeological site. You can go and visit it if you're in Libya. So he was from Libya. He was an African. He was also probably a Jew. His name, Simon, is the name that would be given to Jews. It's a, uh, Simon Peter has that name. It was one of the five most common Jewish male names. Uh, he's also in Jerusalem during the time of the Passover, which is a pretty good indication that, that also that he was a Jew. He's there celebrating Passover. We know he's forced to carry the crossbeam for Jesus. We don't know exactly what it means, forced, but the language there in verse 26 of the cross was laid on him implies that he didn't necessarily rush up to carry the cross, but that he was called out from the crowd to help Jesus. The cross beam, probably what, what, you know, the cross that Jesus was crucified on, from our best guess, was kind of the cross that's up here right now, shaped like that, as a, a, a larger vertical beam and then a shorter horizontal beam by which his arms would hang. The vertical beam was probably permanent. That was probably a long-term execution site. And then the horizontal beam would be carried by the, the, um, the, uh, the upcoming victim in uh, order the, the victim would have to carry his or her own cross beam there. It's probably about 100 pounds is the best guess. Jesus, of course, is fatigued. He's been up all night at this point doing battle with all kinds of forces, spiritual and political. He's been arguing with Herod and the Sanhedrin. And as we'll read tonight, he has this long extended argument with Pilate over the nature of truth and power and how those two things can possibly interact with each other. Pilate's a cynic. He doesn't think that they have anything to do with each other. Truth is the luxury of the poor. Jesus insists that they both go together, but at least by this time, he's been well worn out by his ordeal. And on top of that, he's been flogged. Not the kind of punishment beating that Pilate wants to throw him, but the flogging that goes with somebody who's going to be executed. So by this time, he's gassed. Simon is pulled out of the crowd and made to carry Jesus' cross behind him, Luke says. Other than that, we don't know too much, but there's a few things that we can guess. Mark gives us a detail that Luke doesn't give us. In Mark 15, 21, Mark says, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, same guy, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Well, this is kind of a bizarre, it's bizarre anyway that they tell us his name. It's not super important that you know the guy's name. Frequently people who are secondary characters will show up at any sort of story. You don't really know their name. You don't hardly ever find out the name of the extras in the movie that you're watching. And Simon is kind of an extra, but he's, we're told his name. And on top of that, Mark tells us the names of his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. What's interesting about this is that the way that Mark says it, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, implies that at least some of Mark's readers know who Alexander and Rufus is. Else it doesn't make any sense to bring their name up. I wouldn't say, uh, you know, Angela, the mother, of, the mother of Harry and Kate and Reeve. If you didn't know who Angela was or Harry and Kate and Reeve were, it implies that they know, possibly, to the church in Rome that Mark is writing to, Alexander and Rufus would have been important people. In fact, we know of a guy in the church at Rome named Rufus. 
Romans 16, 13, Paul at the end of his letter to Romans says, greet Rufus, the chosen in, his, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. We do know from the book of Acts chapter 13 that many Christian Cyrenians, Christians from Cyrene, left Cyrene after the stoning of Stephen, went up through Judea and settled in Antioch, where Paul himself lived for several years. It's a little bit of a conjecture, but perhaps that's where Paul met Simon's wife and the mother of Alexander Rufus, who mothered him there and took care of him. At any rate, one thing that we can say, again, not for certain, because Mark doesn't give us a whole lot of details, and neither does Matthew or Luke, is that Alexander is worth remembering. People know his name. Matthew, Mark, and Luke knew his name and somewhat expected their readers to know his name as well. Our best guess is this, that somehow Simon the Jew, up from Africa for the Passover, is thrust up against Jesus, almost certainly had to throw his arms around him to get this wooden beam off of his shoulders and onto his, almost certainly felt his sweat, smelled his blood, maybe even helped pick him up a little bit because he couldn't go on any further. And at some point, again, it's no proof here, but at some point, Alexander, through his connection with Jesus in that moment, became a believer in the one he was about to watch die. This wouldn't be unusual. There were lots of Jews in Jerusalem on the day when Jesus died who ended up becoming believers. Lots of non-Jews as well. Lots of Romans as well. It's not unusual. The fact that Simon and his sons are mentioned seems to indicate that these are important people in the church. In fact, church history, again, no proof here, tells us that Rufus became a bishop and was an important leader. Mentioned here in uh, Mark, chapter, um, Mark chapter 15, and his father mentioned here in Luke chapter 23. But the question remains, why did Luke write about him? Why was he in there? Because people knew him. There's lots of people that are bouncing in and out of the Jesus story that the early church would have known. Why bring up Alexander? I mean, you can tell the story without him. He's not exactly necessary to the narrative. You could have, and John, in fact, will. John will leave this part out, and the story works just as well. Why would you bring up Alexander here? And the answer is, is because Luke and Matthew and Mark as well have spent the, best, the, the back half of their Gospels describing Jesus searching for somebody who would be willing to take up their cross and follow him, as in Mark chapter 8. Look, at, look guys, I'm not headed towards political glory, he tells them. We're not headed towards military victory. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed. And if you want to follow me, you'll leave father and mother and house and home and money and lands, and you will take up your cross and come behind me. And up to this point, nobody's been willing to do it. His best friends who knew him well had heard all of his teaching, had just a couple hours prior abandoned him in the garden. But here's Alexander for once. Somebody in the story takes up the cross and actually comes behind Jesus. Luke emphasizes this, this whole following Jesus thing. Let me read it to you again. Simon was coming in from the country and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Again, an, un, an unnecessary preposition to the story. But Luke wants to draw our attention to this is what Jesus been, has been after the whole time. Now, if you're Alexander, you're a little bit of a unicorn. How many people in the history of the Roman Empire carried the tool of execution on their shoulders to the execution place and then were allowed to walk away unscathed. 
Simon is one of those guys. He walked the path of the cross. He carried the cross on his shoulders. But when he got there, he got to set it down and walk away free. Why? Because it wasn't his cross. The cross that he carried ended up not being his cross at all. It ended up being Jesus's cross. Jesus calls all of us like he does in the gospels. Many times he calls all of us to take up our cross and follow him. There's something a little bit scary about that, of course. Taking up your cross means coming face to face with your own mortality. Losing your life to Jesus in all different kinds of ways, maybe even ultimately at the end, your physical life. But at the end of the day, it's not a burden that you have to carry. It's not a burden that I have to carry. We're called to take up the cross and follow Jesus. And we find that when it comes to the sticking point, that we really didn't need to die after all. We really didn't need to carry the cross after all because it wasn't ours to carry in the first place. That Jesus is the one doing the suffering. Jesus is the one doing the dying. He just wanted us to be with him. He just wanted to be with us. Thus, Simon. What about Barabbas? What do, we, what do we know about Barabbas? Well, we don't know a lot, and we don't know of any of his family members who came to faith. We don't know if Barabbas came to faith after this. We know a little bit, though. We know his name Barabbas means, well, you guys know what it means. Bar is the Aramaic word for son, and Abba is the Aramaic word for father. So Bar Abba, Bar Abbas is just son of a father. It's kind of a generic name. It was kind of a common nickname. Maybe chip off the old block is maybe something similar to what it meant. We know his name also is Jesus. Luke doesn't bring this up, maybe because it's kind of confusing to a Gentile reader. Matthew brings it up because it's not wouldn't be confusing to a Jewish reader. Jesus is a super common name. There's hundreds and hundreds of Jewish guys named Jesus. We're familiar with one of them. It's actually just the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, super common name amongst Jews. So this is Joshua. Joshua means, Jesus' name means Yahweh will save. Yahweh saves. Jesus Barabbas, this is his name. He's a revolutionary. We know from verse 19 of chapter 23. I'll read that again to you. This is a man, Barabbas is a man who'd been thrown into prison for an insurrection, a rebellion, started in the city and for murder. So he's a lestai, as John will call him in our reading, which is the Greek word for bandit. Not bandit in the sense of like stagecoach robber, but a brigand revolutionary, seditious, somebody who's plotting against Rome, somebody who wants to, throw, wants to overthrow Rome. He's been caught, put in jail. Suppose, I, I guess he's going to end up coming to trial for crimes against Caesar, for crimes against the state. He's waiting for that. He's almost certainly, if he's found guilty, he's almost certainly going to get crucified. This is what Rome does to people who commit crimes against the state. He's a revolutionary. Well, why did the gospel writers include him? Again, you could tell the story of Jesus' death, resurrection, and it would still be the same if you left Barabbas out. He doesn't add anything to the narrative per se, but why do they include him? The answer is this, because it's a little bit weird that he and Jesus say, share the same name, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus is the son of the Father, He's the one who encourages his disciples to pray to God as Abba. Here's this guy whose name is son of Abba. They're a little bit the same. Their name means the same thing. Yahweh will save. They both have committed their lives to that proposition that Yahweh will save. Jesus, of course, is determined to bring about the salvation of Yahweh by dying for his enemies. Jesus Barabbas, of course, is determined to bring about the salvation of Yahweh by murdering his enemies. 
They're going about it in two different ways, but they have the same goal. They go about things differently. Jesus is determined to rescue Israel by dying Barabbas, as I said, by killing her. In fact, the crime that Jesus is on trial for, sedition, is a crime that he did not commit. He's going to be executed unjustly for committing a crime he didn't commit. Barabbas, though, is going to be let free for committing the crime that Jesus is on trial unjustly for and is going to get executed for. In other words, Jesus is killed for the crime that Barabbas committed. And that brings us finally to why he's in the story, because ultimately, Barabbas is all of us. Barabbas is guilty of sedition. Barabbas is guilty against, of rebellion against the king. But he's going to end up going free that night. And the reason why he's going to end up going free is because the most innocent person in the world, who actually is the king, who can't possibly be seditious, who can't possibly be rebellious against the king because he is the king of the world, is going to die the death that Barabbas deserves in order so that Barabbas can walk free. And that's what we're doing here tonight. Jesus dies the death that you and I justly deserve for treason against the king of the universe so that you and I can walk out these doors here in a few minutes, scot-free, and not only scot-free, but in perfect relationship with him forever and ever. Amen.
Let's pray. Father, defend your church against all the assaults and temptations of the enemy. Keep us perpetually on the true foundation, your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy. Father, by whose spirit the whole body of the church is filled, gifted, made powerful, made holy. Please hear our prayers which we offer before you for all your servants in your holy church, that every member may truly serve you according to your calling. Lord, in your mercy. Father in heaven, because you hold in your hand all human might and power, and because you have ordained for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do well, all the political powers that exist in all the nations of the world, we humbly pray you to graciously care for President Biden, the Congress of the United States, Governor Pritzker, Mayor Marcus, and all those who make, administer, and judge our laws, that all who receive this world's power as your ministers may bear it according to your word. Lord, in your mercy. Father, you're the comforter of the sorrowful. You're the strength of the weak. May the prayers of those who are in any tribulation or distress come before you so that in all their needs they may rejoice in your great help and comfort. Lord, in your mercy. Father, because you don't seek the death, but the life of everyone, hear our prayers tonight for all who have no right knowledge of you. Free them from their error, and for the glory of your name, bring them into the fellowship of your Son and your church. Lord, in your mercy. Father Almighty, by your word you created and you continue to bless and uphold all things. We beg you to reveal to us your word, our Lord Jesus Christ, in such a way that through his dwelling in our hearts, we may by your grace continue to receive the blessings of his death and resurrection to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When Jesus had spoken these words, the high priestly prayer from John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me?
So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also aren't one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself with the charcoal fire. So they said to him, you also aren't one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves didn't enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man weren't doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die.
So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom isn't of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. You've got a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a brigand. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he's made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you won't speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, 
It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. And so the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it. Cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit.
since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. 